Plantation SDA Church presents The Bible in Christ. Read your Bible daily. Join us every Sunday at 7.30 p.m. for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Let's read the entire Bible Bible Good evening, and welcome to episode 19 of the Bible Unmasked. Um, if this is your first time tuning in, the Bible Unmasked is an overview of um, the entire Bible. Uh, as Plantation SDA Church, what we're doing as a whole is we're walking through the entire Bible chapter by chapter, um, and we are studying together. And then we come together on Sunday nights to answer any questions that you may have had as you were reading the Bible passages this week. We're on every Sunday night at 7.30 on YouTube and PlantationSDA.tv. Um, and what's happening is during Sabbath school and Sabbath service, we're letting you know what chapters you're reading, and then we're putting on social media. So if you're sitting with friends, whoever you're sitting with, you can go ahead and text your questions um, to 954-388-8780. And each week what we'll have is a a pastor or a principal Stevenson will address those questions on that next episode. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our presenter and my co-host this evening. Um, our presenter this evening is Pastor Kevin McCoy. Hello, Pastor Kevin. How are you? Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy again to be with the, with the, with the crew um, for another uh, experience of Bible and Mask. And my co-host this evening, we have Miss Karina Edwards. Karina, thank you so so much for joining us this evening. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Karina, could you pray for us to open this evening before we jump right into what we're studying? Sure. Um, wherever you are right now, just bow your heads, close your eyes with me as we open up with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come together, um, even though it's virtual, um, to talk about um, your word and to really dive into what you have to say. Lord, I ask um, tonight as we go into everything that we all learn something new, that we can take something away from this experience and just give us the wisdom and understanding and the discernment to interpret what you want us to hear from these words. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 So just to recap really quickly, last week's reading was 2 Kings 19 to 1 Chronicles 6. Uh, Pastor McCoy, could you just give us a quick overview of what we read about last week? And then we'll start to touch on uh, what we'll be going through this week. All right. So last week we look at um, the in some ways, particularly the ministry of, of prophet Elijah, um, how the, he, he took over from Elijah um, and how God kind of worked with him in a similar way. But uh, the message of, of that was mostly that, you know, God was present with God's people through the presence of the prophet. And um, so that was significant. And, and then for the first few chapters in, in, in First Chronicles, uh, we it, it consider the genealogy, a kind of a genealogy, um, which is somewhat different from from other genealogies, which we will we'll talk about in 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 a, in a few moments. Perfect. And then this week's reading, we are going from First Chronicle six to Second Chronicle four. So, Pastor McCoy, could you please again give us a brief overview of what we'll be talking about this evening? 
Right. So for for the Chronicles, um, we're looking at something similar to the Kings, but not exactly. Right. Um, it's not necessarily a summation or a summary of the Kings because the the chronicler, the, the author of the Chronicles, um, is selective in how he how how information or, or data from the kings and Samuels um, is used. Some information from uh, Samuels and kings um, are used, but some, some are omitted and the chronicler has a particular purpose in doing this. And as we look, we're going to see how the story of Israel's king is, is told from um, more so from David and Solomon's perspective. Um, particularly in chapter in, in the first chronicles, how there was a united kingdom when there was an effort to live under God's commands and live by the principles that God has set up for King in Israel. But when the departure came, we saw a divided kingdom, um, obviously um, exile, and then we come back to a post-exilic people to which the book of Chronicles, um, the books of Chronicles were written rather. Okay, no, this is going to be an interesting one then. So, so without further ado, we'll go ahead and jump right in. So I guess I'll start with the first question and then Karina, we'll follow after um, and we'll go back and forth and just ask Pastor McCoy to, you know, we'll pick his reign regarding what the readers want to know. Um, so the first reader has asked just first and second Chronicles in general, what is the significance of the genealogical records of Israel? Why do we keep having to hear all the names and all the people that are, that are, they keep chronicling throughout the Bible. Right. So genealogies have a certain kind of function and while they're kind of doing a listing, these listings are not always uh, chronological, though they're genealogies, some of them are not always detailed. Some of them skip generations. They are, they are a theological list. They tell a kind of story from a certain perspective. Now, if you consider, for, for instance, the genealogy of, of, of Jesus, and you know, we're going just to jump in ahead just to make a point. Um, Jesus' genealogy connected him with, with David, connected him with, with Abraham in some ways, connected him um, with with, with, with Adam to make a point about him coming in the Davidic line, line right? Now, the, the genealogy in particular in um, the Chronicles is written for the people who are coming from exile, right? And these people, they, their kind of question is, who are we? Where have we come from? And how have we seen God's promises fulfilled? Because Chronicles... Well, while Kings, while Samuel's, the books of Samuel's and Kings were written to people and in a time of, of exile, um, telling stories that, you know, were, were, were past and some were based on prophecy, we find that the Chronicles were written to people who experienced exile and now are a reestablished community. And so the Chronicles, the uh, Chronicler is telling them who they are, what has happened. And so he's trying to build a connection um, with the history of Israel before they were exiled 
to them now being freed, to show that there is a connection between them, that they are still God's people, that these people who are now out of exile can still feel a belonging in God's company or in God's um, covenant people. And notice it even went back to in the Chronicles, as in the genealogy as in the Chronicles, it went back even to Adam. Rooting Israel are uh, these post-exilic people in the, in the creation story to the point of their reconstitution as God's people when Cyrus um, in, in Persia kind of allowed them to reconstitute as a, as a people. So it's, it's a really interesting story the chronic, that the genealogy is telling in the book of, of Chronicles. Okay, um, next question um, is from First Chronicles 6, verse 31. It's from actually last week's reading. Um, David assigned the following men to lead the music at the, house of the at the house of the Lord after the ark was placed there. And then First Chronicles 9, 33 to 34. The musicians, all prominent Levites, lived at the temple. They were exempt from other responsibilities since they were on duty at all hours. All these men lived in Jerusalem. They were the heads of Levite families and were listed as prominent leaders in their gene genealogical records. So the question is, David carefully picked the musicians. Two weeks ago, Pastor Dexter commented that church musicians need to be sanctified, anointed, and have their lives set apart and purified. We sometimes hire musicians that are not Seventh-day Adventist Christians. Some of our singers are people that we only see at church when they are singing. We tend to choose our singers and musicians based on their mere musical ability, but disregard their ability to be true spiritual leaders. If singers and musicians play an important role in our worship service, shouldn't they be carefully selected? All right, so this is a very... <laughs> It's an extended question, which we appreciate because it contextualizes, um, you know, a very important point that that um, Pastor Dexter made about the significance of musicians being sanctified, anointed, um, and have their lives set apart. Um, so, yes, the question um, um, is focused on the musicians, the Levites. You know, bringing two texts together for that. But we, we recognize that in First uh, Chronicles six thirty one. That the singers were set apart. Well, the, 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 in First Chronicles nine, that they were set apart um, because they had an important role, and they were set apart to this particular room because they wanted nothing else to take their focus away from 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 what they are called to do, which is minister their musical talents in the temple, right? Um, so when it comes to to musicians and the singers in the Seventh Day Church. There is a need for consecration. There is a need for being set aside and being anointed. And so, yes, they play a significant role in, in, in the cultivation of worship and in the engaging people in worship. Um, so they sh there should be a care, they should be, 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 be chosen wisely, as the question was said, carefully. Yes, but um, it doesn't. It, it's not limited just to musicians, um, and, and there's a point to be made. While, while 
somewhat more to sing out single out musicians and singers because sometimes they are, they are members of the church, sometimes they are not, right? Um, but the point I want to make is that everyone who comes in the service of God is called to be sanctified, anointed, and set apart and to live consecrated lives. Um, for it, 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 it's, it's a basic, it's a basic um, expectation for being a Christian, right? Because a Christian is sanctified. What happens though is that those who have, have certain roles and certain functions have a, have a certain level of responsibility and accountability to those whom they serve, right? There's a heightened level of expectation based on the role one, one plays. And there's another question coming up, which um, plays on this one in, a, in some ways. But the point I wanna make with this is, yes, there is, it's important that we have a careful process for selecting musicians and singers because they play a very significant role in cultivating and facilitating worship. But that also applies to anyone who holds the name Christian and calls themselves to, to a committed relationship to Christ. So very significant, very significant. Okay, I appreciate that answer. <laughs> um, so going into the next segment, um, you kind of already touched on this one, but you know, if they ask it, we're gonna specifically answer it. So um, First Chronicles 10 talks about the death of King Saul. First Chronicles 11 is where David becomes the king and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, the question is, the death of Saul and David's life were already detailed in previous chapters. Why are there multiple accounts of some biblical stories? And isn't the Bible written in chronological order? All right, as I mentioned earlier, right, so they, one account um, might be detailed um, numerous times for different purposes. It depends on the function that the author or the goal or, or the goal of the author. So when you see one story being used in a number of ways, we have to consider what are the what details of the story do the author emphasize? And the and the emphasis on those details, what do, do those details um, require of us to do? Right, so different biblical accounts, well, one biblical account may be used numerous times based on the function the author wants to accomplish through that story, right? And how he uses the story and the goal. So that's one thing. Is the Bible written in chronological order? Um, even how the books are aligned in, um, in the canon, the biblical canon, the Bible, is not to the fullest chronological um, because in the Hebrew Bible, we have, well, in our Bible, we have Chronicles, then we have Ezra, Nehemiah, and so forth, then we go on to the prophets. In, uh, no, we have, sorry, that's in the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, we have the Chronicles, Nehemiah, Ezra. But in our Bible, after we come out of the Chronicles, we are going into the, into the what we call poetry, into the Psalms, the Proverbs, and so forth. So even how the, the, the books of the Bible are arranged 
has a, site, a certain kind of rhetorical function, a, a certain kind of purpose that is wanted to be fulfilled. So is the Bible written chronologically? Uh, not, not necessarily. Um, and what do I mean by that? Um, they take, for instance, the prophets, right? Some prophets were post-exilic prophet. Some, some prophets were pre-exilic prophets. Some were post-exilic, some were exilic. What do I mean? Some prophets written, told about the story of the time before the, the, the exile would come. Some prophets functioned like Jeremiah in the exile and some people wrote after they came out of exile, right? So Daniel would be like a pre-exilic pre, pre and sometimes parts of Jeremiah and, and Jeremiah would be in it, Isaiah would be kind of in it and post-exilic. And post so saying, saying all of this to say, there are portions where it is organized chronologically and there are portions where it's not organized chronologically. Okay, next question. Um, it comes from First Chronicles 13, 11 and Second Chronicles 5, 9. But I'm going to read First Chronicles 13, 11 first. Um, David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah, I believe that's how you pronounce it. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is still called today. And Second Chronicles 5, 9 says, these poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place, which is in front of the most holy place, but not from the outside. They're still here. They're still there to this day. The question is, there are many mentions in the Bible of things that are still there to this day or places that have the same name to this day. This suggests that the Bible describes events that occurred long before it was written. If the Bible does not provide a, con a contemporaneous record of events, how do we know that it is accurate? Good question. And let's, let's just put this question down. And here's where I wanna, where I wanna start with this question. This suggests that the Bible describes events that occurred long before it was written. So what happened is that when most Bible writers are, were, were writing, they were telling, telling a story about what happened with a certain purpose and from a certain perspective, right? And so when we speak about accuracy in, when we speak about, speak about accuracy in terms of the records of the, of the Bible, I'm not sure what we mean when we say accuracy. The intent is not necessarily accuracy, but it's to tell a story to give an account of something that happened. And I don't want to get too much in, in this kind of philosophical discussion about an event versus the story of the event, because when a story is told of an event, it is not the event that occurred, right? Um, is a recollection of the event. And so when we speak about accuracy, um, we have to think about that carefully. But here's what I wanna say. The records that we have in the Bible are accurate enough to give us an understanding of God's working with God's people in the past. It gives us a good enough description of what occurred so we can understand the message that the Bible author wants us to understand, to have an, in, an, an understanding of the events that occurred in the past. So 
even, a, even an eyewitness's account of an event does not give the full account of the event, right? And so we have to think carefully. And I want to emphasize this part about, about accuracy because people say, if we are to say that the Bible is accurate or the Bible is accurate, you find people say, okay, one person says this over here, but somebody says it different over there. Are they going to, are, are they, are, is there, in, are there intentions to, 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 to aim at accuracy as well? We might think of accuracy. No, what is happening is John is telling a story about Jesus from how he experienced Jesus from his perspective of that, of Jesus. Matthew is doing the same thing. Mark is doing the same thing. Are they accurate? Each account is accurate based on the credibility of the person who is telling this, the story. Right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Right, so we have to think carefully when we think about about accuracy. Um, so, if the Bible doesn't provide a continuous, a, a, contempor a contemporaneous record of events, a contemporaneous record of events, um, it's not as if something was happening and someone was going around with, with a pen and paper and writing down the story as it happened, as if it's it's a camera shot. Right. So the Bible is not recording contemporaneous events. Most of what is written went through a process of transmission. And this is how and this is, I'm going to give an account of how the Bible came into being to kind of answer this question. Now, when I was growing up, my grandfather used to tell me, you know, Anansi stories. It's a Jamaican thing, right? Anansi stories. And then my uncle used to tell us the Anansi stories and so forth. What happened was, that is called oral tradition, right? Or, or I hear a story about my grandfather from my father, and I'm gonna tell a story about my father now to, to my child. That is called oral tradition, the passing on of stories or traditions or customs orally. Now what happened in the biblical situation is, stories were being told year, like hundreds of years before they, were, they started written down. So think of, think of the, the, the biblical story of creation. Creation story is probably 2,000 years before being told as a story before it was written down, <laughs> right? So it's, it's a story being told over and over and over and over again, the oral tradition. And then now, when, when oral tradition now, when literacy became a, a big feature, right? When literacy became a big feature now, these oral stories began to be written down to be preserved for future generations, right? And so when you think about accuracy, we have to think about what happened in terms of the oral tradition um, of, of the biblical story being told over and over again, right? Um, some additions, some subtractions, but the goal and the function of the story remained essentially the same. Right, I know that was a lot on that, but yeah, <laughs> just trying to make sense of that. Right, that makes that actually makes perfect sense because when I was um, studying Chronicles, it's pretty much like the vantage point. It's like who whose angle are you reading it from? And then what I understood about the writer of Chronicles was that their their goal was to kind of put hope back in this new. Um, in this generation of people. So that's why they went back to Adam and kind of went through everything again and highlighted 
you know, we talked about Saul and David again, and the reason they're bringing them up again is to show what they went through and remind them of, you know, the God of then, and, you know, basically let them know that they're still covered. They're still, God is still their same God. So like when you start to think about those things, then you can see why they would touch on Saul again and touch on David again and touch on, you know, all these different things again and touch on the genealogy and just show how everything connects. Um, so it's, that's a really, that's a really, um, I mean, a deep part to, to bring up that it's the, it's really just what the goal of each of the stories was, why, why we're actually talking about giving this story over and over again. Right. Right. That's right. So the next question, we go right back into music. So, <laughs> so this one is from, um, it had two verses before the question. So the first verse they mentioned is first Chronicle 13 verses eight. And that said, David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. Then the next verse says, First Chronicle 15, verse 16 says, David also ordered the Levite leaders to appoint a choir of Levites who were singers and musicians to sing joyful songs to the accompaniment, uh, accompaniment of harps, lyres, and cymbals. The question is, are there holy instruments and instruments that should be avoided during church service? Wow, what a question. Uh, right? Yeah, good question. Right? Because the, the, this has always come up in the context of worship, right? the use of instruments. Um, so here's how I want to start by answering this question. I remember as a, as a high schooler, um, when I was in my vocational class um, studying electrical installation, there's something I, 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 I never forgot my, my instructor said to me that good tools make a good work person. <laughs> Right. Um, but I real I've, I've come as I as I've, you know, matured in life and, and, and worked and seen a lot of stuff. I realized that even the best tool in the hand of an unskilled craftsperson can become the worst tool. <laughs> right. But the best quality tool in this hand of an unskilled person can become a, a dangerous weapon, if you please. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> You have something to say? Let me see you. I was just saying, mercy. Go ahead. Yes, yes. Um, what, am I, what do I mean by this? Why am I saying it this way? Instruments of themselves possess no innate sacredness or holiness, right? Instruments of themselves are inanimate and they come to life under the the, the, the skillfulness of, of, of a musician. So oftentimes, and let me, I have to bring this into a cultural perspective too. Instruments are often defined uh, as holy or unholy based on a cultural critique. What do I mean? The, and this is, this is historical, this is, factually historical or historically factual, right? Um, the, the piano and the harps the, and, the, and the violin have, have, have often been thought of as instruments that were packaged by God and sent down to earth to bring glory to God, right? Um, 
And I mean that in a good way, <laughs> in a good way, right? Um, but when it comes to the bass guitar and the drums, these are things that are of a devil because they, they, they conjure up spirits and they, well, if you look in the story of Samuel, David was, what was David playing um, to calm, Saul, to calm um, Saul, right? Yes, it was a kind of a, a string instrument. Um, uh, but the point I want to make with this is that instruments can become in, instruments can become mediums of producing holy atmosphere based on the person who is playing them. So the point I'm making is that I believe personally, I believe personally with a skilled, going back, consecrated, anointed musician, any instrument can bring play, praise and glory to God and thus be described as a holy instrument. Right, because even a, even even a harp, even a piano, even a violin, which so such wonderful instruments, in the hand of an unskilled person, can create hellish sounds. <laughs> right, um, can create hellish sounds which disturb you and not lead you into the presence of God. Right, so. No, no instrument is holy of itself. Um, and I believe any and every instrument can be used to bring glory and honor to God. Um, there, there is one scripture that says, um, if I, I, I'm not remembered carefully right now, I'm correct right now, but the, the rocks will cry out, right? The rocks, right, right. It's the scripture reference, the rocks will cry out. So if rocks can give praise to God and, and, and make joyful sounds or make sounds that are musical or bring praise to God, any instrument it can, right? Any instrument is holy and worth, useful for, for, for worship in the hand of a skilled, consecrated musician. That, that's why I want to leave that right here. That's a... That's a pretty legit angle. I appreciate that one for sure. <laughs> yeah, I like that answer. <laughs> um, the next question is actually taken from First Chronicles 13, verse 9 to 12. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah and he struck him dead because he had laid his hand on the ark. So Uzzah died there in the presence of God. David was angry because of, because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Peruzza, which means to burst out against Uzzah as it is still called today. David was now afraid of God and he asked, how can I ever bring the Ark of God back into my care? So the question is, should Uzzah have let the Ark fall? Was God's anger and punishment against him justified? Wasn't David right, rightly angry at God and afraid of him? Is it okay to be angry at God? Wow. Just a couple questions in one there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I appreciate this question as, as I did, all, as I do all questions, right? Um, so let me give some context to this, right? Um, the transfer and care of the ark 
had already been outlined and God had already given instruction about who and how the, the ark can be transferred or taken care of or who can touch it. Now, if I'm thinking carefully and, and remembering carefully, um, Uzzah, was, Uzzah was not consecrated or set aside for this purpose. That was not his function, right? I'm going to use this word for, for, for a reason, right? His function was not as a Levite. He was not a child, he was not to function. He was not functioning in this in the service of God regarding these holy things. And so what we are seeing here is an example of what is called retributive justice, God's retributive justice, right? Where God says, if you do good, you are blessed. But if you disobey, um, then you're kind of cursed. Remember that kind of came from in Deuteronomy and so forth is coming up, right? Because in some ways, Deuteronomy is in, has been informing we, we, as we saw, the book of Samuel's, the book of Kings, and even Chronicles. We are seeing themes coming back from, from the book of Deuteronomy. And this is one of them of God's retributive justice, right? Um, the idea is, even if the oxen stumble, based on what God had outlined already, he should not have touched the, the, the ark. That's, that's he, so should he have allowed it to fall? Well, maybe he wouldn't have fallen because the oxen stumbled. Notice how the story put it, right? The oxen stumbled and he reached out his hand to touch, to, to steal the ark. The story itself kind of suggests that the ark wasn't going to fall, right? Yes, he put it out to steady, but it wasn't saying as if the, the, it was falling off and he, and he caught it when it was falling off or something like that. But he put his hand to steady it, right? So the story is kind of portraying his actions in a certain way that yes, it is unintentional, but also there is a transgression based on God's regulations around cultic regulations around worship and stuff like that. So what the story is actually saying to us is emphasizing how important religious matters are, right? That's what the story is telling us, how important religious matters are. Um, and it was important for David to sense this because he was, he was God's king. And he, he needed to have, a, have an understanding of how important these things are for God because he is going to be taking the ark of God in his care, right? Um, and so David became fearful because he, he witnessed something tragic, something unintentional, and as a king, it caused him to really take account of his responsibility, right? You know, it's unintentional. The story is about God's justice. But it, it, it prepared David and situated him in terms of his leadership of, as a king of Israel and his responsibility also in terms of religious matters, how important religious matters are to God, as simply as as simple as steadying an ark when it appeared as if it was going to fall. So was, was God's anger just and his punishment just? According to God's own standards, yes, God is just in that doing that. For us, um, his actions were unintentional. And we, we were like, okay, you could have given an opportunity, given another chance. But from God's perspective, 
Obedience brings blessings. Disobedience brings brings a curse against you. And it shows God's consistency um, with this kind of retributive justice. And so David was right to be afraid, right? He was right to be afraid. And that, that fear, I believe, stirred some sense of reverence within him, right? Because I think, let me see the passage, 13, the... He turned over the ark to someone who, in my reading, was connected somehow with the, um, to um, Abidaman, right? That's in, in, in verse 14, when you, read, when you read further on. And this person is somehow connected to the tribe of, tribe of Levite, and he had some consecrated role. And the Bible says in verse 14 that his house was blessed the three months that the, 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 the ark was with him, right? So notice, one person was cursed for touching the ark because they weren't responsible to function in that way, but one who was responsible took care of the ark and was blessed. So there again, we see God's retributive justice coming to the fore. Yeah, we'll, I'll, we'll accept that one because, you know, it's God. We'll accept that one, but... That one has always been a tough one for me. I'm like, man, the man tripped and touched the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, okay. Yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, that does kind of lead right into this next question about kind of leaders and your assigned roles and things like that. So right. this next question comes from First Chronicle 15, verse 13. And it says, because you Levites did not carry the ark the first time, the anger of the Lord our God burst out against us. We failed to ask God how to move it properly. The question, interesting question, mm -hmm. why did God want the Levites to carry the ark? Are there certain tasks that must be performed by the pastors, elders, or certain ministry leaders? Is it because they are holier than others? Hmm. Interesting and um, good question. So as we spoke about roles a while ago and function. Um, so the Levites were set aside. That was their function. They were set aside, consecrated to take care of God's business, which included the ark, right? Um, so in that setting where the, the worship of God was prepared, led, managed by a certain few in, in the community or among the believers of faith, among the Israelites, it is, not necessarily, it is not necessarily so among us now as a priesthood of believers. And so when you think about the Levites in the, in the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament, when you think about them in that context, we think about it under how that was organized. You have the, the priests, you have the Levites, and they, they were the only ones who, who engage in that kind of, kind of function, in that kind of ministry. But when it comes to the New Testament, we find that all of us are, we are now a priesthood of believers. All of us have a function within the body of Christ. And when you go into Ephesians, um, Paul talks about this kind of some more, and in, in some of his other epistles. And so are there certain tasks that must be performed by the pastor, elder, and certain ministry leaders? Um, because of the function of the pastor, and I'm, think, and I'm taking these 
as roles and functions now. Pastor as a person, but more so as a function. The elder as a function. The ministry leaders has as as function. Right? The pastor is not holier than the member. The member is not holier than the pastor. But the pastor has been in a similar way set aside for a certain function, a certain a higher level of responsibility and accountability. Right? A certain level of functioning which is different from that of the members. But functioning does not determine one's level of holiness. Right? My, because I function as a pastor doesn't mean that I am more holy than you are, right? Holiness is defined and constituted by one's relationship with God, one's own consecrated living and, and, and so forth, right? So let's get that out of the way. The pastor, the elder is not holier than the ministry leader. And the ministry leader is not holier than the other members. What happens here is a different level of functioning. And we saw a while ago how function is important, right? Because what happened is that, I think his name was Uzo we were talking about a while ago, he, stopped, he stepped into a function that was not his, right? And so in the, in, in, the, in the distribution of functioning, we are having the distribution of labor, right? The, the pastors function certain ways, the elders function certain ways so that the work of God together can be fully taken care of, right? So it's not as it's in a one-to-one -one way as it was with the Levites, you know, where they were seen as a more holier people than the other Israelites and the priests were also seen in that light. We are all, we are all God's people saved in the same way by faith um, to the righteousness of Christ but we have different functions in the body of Christ as how the, the, the eye has a different function from the nose and mouth, so forth. That's how I like to think of the, the, the roles of the elders, pastors, and ministry leaders. And I'm, I'm, I'm intentional in, in referring to these as roles and not just as, as a personality. The pastor is a personality, but it's a role, it's a function. Next question is taken from is actually the verse after. Um, first, Chronic first Chronicles 15, verse 14. So the priests and the Levites purified themselves in order to bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to Jerusalem. And the question is, what does it mean to purify ourselves and how should we purify ourselves? All right, so in the, in, in the context of, of the Hebrew religion and functioning purifying was a was a ritual ritual act and when i say ritual i mean religious uh, um one that a, a practice that has deep religious significance and meaning so i'm not using ritual in a light way right here so to purify oneself was was a ritual matter right and it it, it sometimes included washing with water um uh, and, and many other things, right? But when it, when it comes to, to us now, when, when we think about in our context, what it means to purify ourselves, we purify ourselves by repenting of our sins, turning
turning away from them and engaging in, again, the rituals that we have for purification right now, which are which are, which are the, the, the Holy Communion and for some baptism. But purifying also has to do with having the right mindset, having the right kind of behaviors. And that's what we find in Romans chapter 12, right? Being conformed to this world, but be transformed by your mind. Um, so purification is a holistic process um, that begins with how one sees God as holy being and allowing that image of God, that understanding of God as holy being to influence and direct how we live in relation to God's holiness. Purifying ourselves is itself, um, while ritual in terms of communion, repentance and stuff is also a part of the process of sanctification and how we live our daily lives. I like that. I like that way of looking at it. Instead of maybe just one or two things, it's pretty much what you do each day. Right. So this next question, this is an interesting one as well. So this one comes from First Chronicles 17 verses 9 and 10. And it says, and I will provide a homeland for my people, Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people, Israel, and I will defeat all your enemies. Furthermore, I declare that the Lord will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. And the question is, did an Israel experience defeat after David's death, after this point? So basic, basically, yes, because under David, there was the united monarchy, right? Um, all the tribes, all the tribes of Israel were together under his leadership and on, also under, under Solomon's leadership. Um, you had one united kingdom, right? One united Israelite kingdom. But you re recognize that as, and we're going to see it coming up in the other chapters and also Book of Chronicles. And I think it be began with Re Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, how he departed from Solomon's wise ways, you know, trying to follow into God's footstep, but he turned... He turned away and we we're going to find when, you know, some idolatry, some acts of idolatry coming in and all of those stuff. So, yes, Israel defeated, Israel experienced defeat because they moved away from the kind of the, the, the kings or leaders moved away from the kind of Davidic and also Solomonic um, leadership. Because in David's, in David's, under David's rule, you find the... The beginnings of the temple coming, the the, the the temple coming forward. He conceptualized, he he initiated this concept of building this and this this edifice for God's holy presence. You know, symbolizing the importance of God in in the midst of Israel under his leadership. You know, God denied him that privilege, but but Solomon, his son, was given the privilege to build it, build the the the, the temple, right. Um, but you're going to find that when the other kings come, they departed from these kind of ways. And that led also to Israel's defeat, going again to God's retributive justice. Um, you obey, you're walking my covenant ways, 
you are blessed. You disobey, depart my covenant ways, and you find yourself with, with curse and, and, and defeats. Next question is taken from First Chronicles 17, 11 to 14. For when you die and join your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your sons, and I will make him and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will who will build a house, a temple for me, and I will secure his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my favor from him as I took it from the one who ruled before you. I will confirm him as king over my house and my kingdom for all time, and his throne will be secure forever. So the question is, who is God referring to? When and where was the temple built? The obvious answer seems to be that Solomon built the temple. But is there more to it? Is the passage referring to Jesus Christ? Um, so the initial context and the person was wise enough to, to, to answer a part of the question is that it is really speaking about Solomon building the temple. And as, as I mentioned a while ago, David conceptualized or initiated the process of, you know, building the temple, wanting to build a temple. But here we find that God says, no, not you, but your son, which we find in the story becomes, turns out to be Solomon. Is there more to it? Um, we can stretch for more, but as you find there, it's really speaking about Solomon, right? But is the passage also referring to Jesus Christ? Well, we can make an argument for that, but how would we support that argument, right? Based on this, on this, on this passage, right? We can probably say, okay, this is a prophecy speaking about Solomon, which would become like a, a type of Christ to come. Um, arguments like that, um, but. For me, the passage is very clear. It's speaking about Solomon and him having the privilege of building the temple rather than his, his father. He says, I will confirm him as king over my house and my kingdom for all time, and his throne will be secured forever. Um, and we can say, yes, it's thinking, talking about Christ because Christ came as a, as a type, as a Davidic king. Remember I mentioned earlier about, you know, how... Matthew portrayed, you know, Jesus as a king coming from the line of David. Yes, there's an argument. We can think about it in that way also, right? If we want to go into typological, you know, studies of the passage, we can also say that, yes, it's speaking about Christ who would come as a king out of the line of David, um, who would function in a way like David, Solomon, um, as king over Israel. So an argument can be made for that. So this next question was actually one that I genuinely had when I was reading, because uh, this was one where uh, when he said God got angry at him and so on and so forth, I was like, but why? So this one has a couple verses to support it. The first verse says, First Chronicles 21 um, verses 1 and 2, says Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, take a census of all the people of Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north and bring me a report so I may know how many they are. And the second one says, First Chronicles 21 verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5. But Joab replied, 
May the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over. But why, my Lord, the king, do you want to do this? Are they not all your servants? Why must you cause Israel to sin? But the king insisted that they take the census. So Joab traveled throughout all Israel to count the people. Then he returned to Jerusalem and reported the number of people to David. And there were 1,100,000 warriors in all Israel who could handle a sword and 470,000 in Judah. And the final verse is First uh, Chronicle 21, verse 7. And it says, God was very displeased with the census and he punished Israel for it. And the question is, what is wrong with taking a census? And is that wrong today? What was wrong with taking a census? Now, David is a, is a king anointed, anointed by God to lead Israel, right? He is, on the one hand, a political figure, but he's also a religious figure. If David comes and says, we have the biggest army in the world, right? We are such a large people. No one can stop us. Let us move forward. Let us conquer nations. Let us conquer kings. Let us all do, let us all do this by the might, by our might and by our numbers, right? He moves, he moves from the place of dependence on God, right? So the census suggests a reliance on numerical might, right? Um, we are, we are, we are, if we can, if we are so many people, you know, look at how my kingdom is big. Look at how powerful I am, how many soldiers are, or this or that. But the census came against dependence on God. That's kind of the suggestion we're getting right here, right? That it's a sin to count God's people in an instance to, as it were, depend on your numerical advantage or numerical might, rather than leaning on the God who multiplied your people and gave you such power to lead these people. So it's a sin in that he, it's wrong in that the census, no, the census counting, the counting leaned towards a dependence on numerical might rather than trusting in God's faithfulness and power to lead, to lead him as a people, to lead him as a king and him leading his people. So, so it would be a sin of pretty much pride. So yes, that's a good way of putting it. That's a good way of putting it. Okay. Um, is it wrong today to have a census? Um, well, in the in this, which is a which is a story of God's working with with people, it depends on the purpose of the census. Now, here's why it's wrong. It's wrong also. Notice that um, in in the in the text. Joab replied, right? May the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over, right? It's God who does this increasing. You, you are counting. But don't forget, it's God who does the increase. But why, my Lord, the king, do you want to do this? Are they not all your servants? Why must you cause Israel to sin? Right? So Joab in the story right? Joab, the words of Joab that are placed on Joab's lips, you know, his reply to the king suggests that David had enough warning, right? To know that a, a census would be going against God's 
working or God's provision or God's God's leading in Israel's life. May the Lord increase the number of his people, right? It's God's people. It's not necessarily your people. So you come counter, you counting God's people and depending on, on that numerical might is the is, is, is directing or, or um, deflecting your, your attention from the true source of this numerical advantage that you might have, which is God and not yourself. So that's kind of the, 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 the thought that suggests that it's, it's really a wrong thing for David to have done. So today we can do a census um, for different reasons. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's done, um, I think, every, I don't remember how many years it's done, but I think we did the census last year and it's for the, for the vision of resources um, you know, in America, and it can be done for other reasons, for keeping contact with people, so so many other reasons. So today, um, it depends on what the purpose of the census is and the spirit in which it's done. If it's not done in the spirit of pride or independence from God, then, you know, it's it's okay. Okay, so the next question, it comes from Second Chronicles chapter 1, 11 to 12. God said to Solomon, because your greatest desire is to help your people and you did not ask for wealth, riches, fame, or even the death of your enemies or a long life, but rather you ask for wisdom and knowledge to properly govern my people, I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge you requested, but I will also give you wealth, riches, and fame, such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. And the question is, is it wrong to pray for wealth, riches, and long life? Off the bat, no. God says, I wish above all things that you prosper, right? Um, in health and, and obviously in other ways. And I'm going to take an example from the book of Chronicles to respond to this question too. In the book of First Chronicles, we have the story of Jabez, right? And Jabez prayed, Lord, bless me indeed and enlarge my territory. Now, when you think of, in, in, when we think of territory today, we think of it metaphorically. Um, increase my reach in society, increase my, increase my influence, increase my something, but we think of it metaphorically. When he said, bless me indeed and enlarge my territory. He was speaking about land, right? Because in those times, land was part of the currency of the day. Land was currency. And Jabez said, bless me indeed and enlarge my territory. And what did the Bible say? God blessed him, right? And he was even greater than his siblings, I think that the text said. Right in the story of Jabez, but not only that. In the book of Chronicles two, I don't have the reference with me right now because it's something I remember from a long time ago. Um, there was a, a land in there was a la, there was a piece of land or a place that eventually was called Jabez, and the suggestion is that Jabez acquired so much possession, so much wealth that he had a land where he owned was named after him. So is it wrong to pray for wealth, riches, and long life? No. With all, with all the gusta and everything you can muster up, go ahead and pray for wealth, riches, and long life. Pray for it. God has a, has a, has a cattle upon a thousand ills. God, listen, 
all that is in this world is for our blessings and our benefit. Riches, wealth, long life, it is for our benefit as God's people. Well, if you look in the Garden of Eden, um, besides some rivers and in some land, there was gold, there was pearl, there was all of this. When you read in the creation story, and they, they tell you about the river of, Tar of, of Targus or Tarsus or something like that, you'll find Adam and Eve had what we're talking about, praying about. They had wealth, they had riches, they had long life. Sin is the only interrupter of all of that. So pray, brother, pray, sister. And when you come in your kingdom, remember me. <laughs> yeah, perfect. I like that. The idea is pray. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm. Nothing. Okay. But it's better, as is seen in the context of this text, to pray. There, there are things better than health, riches, and even long life. And it is how, and it is the wisdom to use the wealth, the riches, and how to live life better. It's wisdom and knowledge to, to use all of these gifts and blessings to be a benefit to, 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 to others and also um, honor to God's name. That's where the key comes in. And that's what Solomon did. Focus on what will make him a better person rather than just acquiring possessions. Hmm. Yeah. I like that answer. I shall be praying for those things. And mm -hmm. when I come into my kingdom, I'll remember everybody. Thank you. So <laughs> So this last question, um, it's a straightforward one. So this is one, and I've heard these colors, I'll say, mentioned in the Bible a couple different times. So it says, Second Chronicles 3, verse 14, New Living Translation. Sorry. Across the entrance of the most holy place, he hung a curtain made of fine linen, decorated with blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and embroidered with figures of cherubim. Do these colors have any spe um, special significance? Um, yes, they do in terms of them being specific colors for specific purposes. Um, and that's in the, that's in the religious worship context because, uh, purple represents royalty, you know, scarlet sometimes represent, you know, the cleansing and, 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 and stuff like that. Um, so yes, they are they are of special significance, and that's why in the creation of the sanctuary, um, even from the time when God outlined the the features to to Moses, even the materials themselves had special significance. And so yes, there is significance to these colors, and um, they are for the most part reminders of the meaning of what the temple represents, what is the temple is to represent to us. So for instance, consider that the Israelites used to wear um, phylacteries, um, the priests used to have like a pomegranate or a bell to their, to, to their, to their, to, to his, um, to his, his robe. Um, they were for specific reminders um, of, 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 the sacredness and the holiness of, of the temple and what is, and its meaning for them as God's people. So yes, they, they are significant. Like as it is for today, where we see um, certain colors have significance for us, like uh, um, the traffic lights, um, green says go, um, 
Amber says, you know, caution and 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 stuff like that. So um, there, there there are significances to to those colors, um, which which can be depth um, um, explored more deeply through what is called you know typological studies. You know, what is this a type of? What is it a type of? Or you know, symbols and and stuff like that. So yes, they are significant. Okay, and that actually is the last question. Uh, so thank you, Pastor McCoy. Thank you, Miss Karina, uh, for joining us this evening. Um, for everyone watching, I want to invite you to catch up with us next week. Uh, next week, we're going to be going through Second Chronicles verses 5 through 31. As you're reading, uh, again, remember, just read a little bit each day because that is what's going to um, allow you to actually take in everything. Um, so as you're reading, go ahead and text your questions to 954-388-8780. Um, next week, you'll have Pastor Jen and Principal Stevenson going through the questions and answers with you. But before we close, um, Pastor McCoy, could you just give us a quick minute synopsis of synopsis of what's going to be happening in Second Chronicles five through thirty-one? What can the viewers expect as they're reading? Right. So in in First Chronicles, we 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 focused on the united monarchy under the leadership of King David. In Second Chronicles, it's going to shift focus to the leadership under Solomon. And then from there, we're going to find the divided kingdom. How, you know, after Solomon left and his son took over and their departure from God's ways in terms of, you know, leading under as kings under God's rulership, we find a departure, how the kingdom became divided and how they went into, went into exile because of disobedience. So that's kind of um, how Second Chronicles, the reading for next week, um, sets up. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. So again, next, as we're going through these, I want to invite you guys to read with your family members, your friends, your coworkers, make sure you're texting your questions as they pop up. We want to answer them again. I want to thank you, Pastor McCoy, Miss Karina, all our viewers. Thank you so much. Um, and remember, just go ahead and subscribe to our Plantation SDA YouTube channel so you can be automatically reminded of any future episodes or any of our other live stream services and events and things that take place. Um, so as we close, Pastor McCoy, can you go ahead and close out for us in prayer? Certainly. Let us pray. Certainly. Oh, God, we thank you so much for your blessings and your goodness, for the privilege and opportunity to study your word and share gems from it. We thank you for knowledge of the history of what has happened in the past and how it can inform us in how we live and for the future. May we take your word seriously, obey it, that we can be blessed and uh, honor you as our covenant God. Bless us and all who are watching in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.